Amen. You may be seated. You know, uh, I've often thought to myself that um, the, our, our, uh, the very best of our moments of, I don't know, realization of how great God is, um, these moments where we uh, uh, experience the love of the body, the love of Christ, and we see it, we get a glimpse. It truly is a mere glimpse into the realities of our daily life in heaven. Um, and uh, one day our eyes will be fully opened and we will truly see how great God is. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Taking care of some more business, we're good to go. I don't think, are there sprouts here today? I think we're good to go. All right, let's give a hand to our sprouts workers. Everybody's on vacation, I guess. All right, um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, isn't this a pleasant surprise? I have two more to preach at today. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, if you're new to the Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians in the table of contents, find the page number, uh, and you'll, you'll be able to find it. Um, we actually do have, uh, Lord willing, in the next couple, couple of weeks, Bibles coming for, for those of you who don't have a Bible, and uh, for guests that are with us, um, hopefully we'll be able to provide Bibles very soon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2, we are going to read through verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. By the way, when we were reading this during our family worship times this week, when I read that line, my daughters quickly looked at my wife, my head shaven, what's going on here? For if a wife will not cover her head and grow out, you know, the, the side over here, then, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair, shave her head, let her cover her head, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why wife, uh, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in, in the Lord, woman, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Love and authority. These are two words that in our culture typically do not go together. 
For example, we might see a policeman as authority, but we certainly wouldn't view him as love. Or vice versa, we might see a friend as love, but we certainly wouldn't view our friend as authority. In culture today, we separate love and authority, and we say that you are either one or the other. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, we could say that we define true love based on an intentional avoidance of authority. Uh, Meaning, this person loves me, and how do I know he loves me or she loves me? Because there is no sense of authority there. And so you either then are a loving person, you are love, or you are authority, but never both. Never both. Now, uh, as confusing as this chapter is, all right, so all, everybody who's scratching your head during the reading of that, um, join the club. As confusing as this chapter is, really what this chapter is all about is this, this relationship between love and authority. Love and authority. And what Paul wants here, if we zoom in to say uh, verse 16, we see that he wants this to be evident in the church. Meaning, in the, while, while in culture, love and authority, two separate things, he says in the church, Love and authority ought to be seen as two sides of the same coin. Now, one pastor said, if you preach this text right here, this is proof that you are committed to expositional preaching. All right, which means that you're just preaching through the Word of God and you preach whatever comes next. So, for instance, for for those of you that are visiting today, uh, if, what we've been doing is going one chapter at a time, and it just so happens we finished chapter 10 and now we're into chapter 11, all right? So this isn't like the text that we uh, typically go to if we want to hit one out of the park, all right? So like when I'm invited to preach at a school or something, I'm not like pulling out 1 Corinthians 11. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a home run today, you know? Um, topical, like here comes Easter. I know, which, I know what I'm preaching. I'm going to have a full house, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here we go, head coverings, right? Um, our, our method in the garden is to not pick and choose, all right? Our method is to basically give you the Word of God as it is. Um, and so we, we, we can't just ignore certain passages because they are hard to preach. And this may be the hardest passage I've ever had to preach in a while, at least. I mean, you just read it, and you're like, what do you say? Um, a number of our members are in the habit of reading our text prior to, the sun, prior to Sunday to uh, prepare their hearts for worship. And the responses I've got from this text already is just entertaining. Everything from like anger to are you serious to are we going to start handing out doilies to um, I don't know how to apply this to good luck, Joel. Um, it's not an easy text, uh, but... but at the end of the day, uh, we, we've got to understand what Paul is saying and what the Word of God is actually saying, meaning uh, for us today. Look at verse 16. Let me just zoom in right here really quick. He says, if anybody's inclined to be contentious, 
uh, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul is basically saying, after he said all of this about head coverings and hair, he basically says, all right, so enough said about that. Let's move on, all right? Um, there's no reason to be contentious about this. Let's, let's, I just put it out there. Uh, you don't need to argue it. You don't need to debate it. Let's just, let's, let's just go on to the next thing. We're going to talk about communion, all right? Now we're, we're moving on. By the way, Quick word, housekeeping, this communion passage, the rest of 1 Corinthians, I've already preached that text, so I'm not going to preach that one. We just get to zoom in on head coverings. You can find the Lord's Supper text uh, online. All right, so Paul says, enough said, all right? John Gill, uh, an old theologian from the past, he said, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll quote him, John Gill says, enough has been said here on the, in this passage to satisfy any wise and good person, anybody that is serious and thoughtful, meaning like, okay, I see what he's saying, let's move on. So if you're serious and you're thoughtful, you should be satisfied after the reading of that text, amen? And you're like, what? I think I'm serious and I think I'm thoughtful, but I am not satisfied. I have no clue what is being said. Now, um, Two common mishaps. Actually, I'm sorry, before I do the mishaps, I want to give you a quiz, all right, because I know we love quizzes. True, this is a true or false, all right? Not multiple choice. True or false? Number one, um, is all Scripture the Word of God? True or false? True. We believe uh, that all Scripture is the Word of God. If you're not a Christian with us this morning, uh, what we believe about the Bible is that God spoke through his people, through prophets, and that this actually comes to us as the Word of God, all right? So all Scripture is the Word of God. This is why we go expositionally through a book. We can't just skip through because this is the Word of God as much as last week's passage, all right? Second, second uh, question, true or false? If it is the Word of God, um, if it is God's truth, true or false? Is all of God's truth good and beneficial for all of his people? True. So even if something hits us in a strange way, or culturally rubs us the wrong way, or culture, something comes along and says, I don't think this is good, we believe that while it's God's word, that all of his truth is good. Not just something that we have to go along with, but good for all of God's people. Now, with that said, two common mishaps when reading and interpreting this passage. Number one, some Christians uh, decide to err, and maybe you could say rightly so, trying to be faithful to the Word of God. They, they decide to err on the side of safety. And so they apply this extremely Literally. So I could take you to some fellowships where there's godly, good people, um, and the, the women wear head coverings, like a little thing uh, on their head. And if you remove that, you'll see that they haven't cut their hair. They have very long hair, and it's piled up into the, onto the top of their head in, in a bun. If you ever see a Christian in some tradition wearing a bun, head covering, just simply know that they're trying to apply this uh, literally, trying to be faithful, all right? Um, now, I don't think it would be a sin if a uh, woman or a couple in the church decided that they were going to embrace this very literally. However, I want to say this, and this is why I say this, is, this, this could be erring. 
it's possible that to just simply read this and then apply it extremely literally could actually miss the point of what Paul is trying to make. So let's keep in mind that Paul's coming off of this whole talk on becoming all things to all people, giving up rights, essentially moving along with culture to make the bigger statement. So it's possible that we could miss the point and actually be unfaithful to the text. More about that in a little bit. The second way that, that we could err here is this. It's sort of the other side. To say, okay, if head coverings are cultural, then that means everything is cultural. That means gender roles are cultural. Meaning, how can you say that wives ought to submit to their husbands and then not also require them to wear head coverings? You see what I'm saying? So if one is cultural, then that means everything is cultural. So that means Paul had some cultural reason as to why he wanted wives to submit to husbands and for that to be seen in the church. Now, to, to, to get to the bottom of difficult passages like this one, I want to give you an exegetical rule, which means as you're interpreting Scripture, this is, this is something to keep in mind, and it helps us get to the meaning of what Scripture is saying to us today, okay? Here's the exegetical rule. There is a difference between a principle and a symbol, all right? Let me, let me try to break this down. Try to track with me just for a little bit here. A principle is something that is rooted in creation. It's a never-changing truth of God. Something that's good for all of God's people, something that God designed, and something that will be through all cultures. That's a principle, okay? Do not kill. All right, that's a principle. So, so uh, uh, it's not a cultural, it doesn't change from culture to culture. All right, principle. Now there are symbols, all right? So a symbol throughout the scriptures, is um, a picture of the principle. So it's a cultural practice that demonstrates the principle. Are you tracking here? What I want to show you is what the principle is, and then what the symbol is, and how we can then apply this to our lives today, all right? Now, we're going to be a little, we're already kind of like going a little a little deeper this morning, I just want you to follow along, try to, you know, if you need to get an extra cup of coffee, do what you got to do, slap yourself in the face, do, do your thing. We're going we're gonna to try to get to the bottom of what Paul is saying, and we also want to apply this to us today. That is the goal of all preaching. So, let's get into it. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 serves for us as the foundation of Paul's argument, because he's commending them in something and delivering the traditions and the teaching. Verse 3, he says, but I want you to understand something. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of, of Christ is God. Now some, because we don't like authority and love attached together, some would say that this cannot mean authority. Head cannot here refer to authority. And so some, you might read some commentators, and they might say that head here means source. It it's, means uh, where something came from. So for instance, Christ came from God. Uh, man 
came from Christ, and then woman came from man out of his rib. The problem with interpreting head to mean source is that there really is just zero um, biblical as well as cultural evidence that head ought to be seen as source. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read it. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 actually helps us understand what he means by head here. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So the, the response of the godly wife, because husband is called head, is actually submission. So head then has to be seen as some kind of authority, meaning Christ is under the authority of the Father, man is under the authority of Christ, and the wife is under the authority of her husband. Now, far from this being sexist, because I know our culture today, I'm part of it as well, I know how this sounds, far from being sexist, Paul, what he's doing here is he is calling the men in the Corinthian church to a whole new reality of life. You see, in the men in the Corinthian church uh, would take advantage of their wives. They would treat their wives as property. And Paul is saying this to them. He's saying, man, you will directly answer to Christ for how you loved and how you led your wife. Meaning it would be absolutely hypocritical then for a man to take this passage or any other passage and apply it to their wife without applying it to themselves. You see what I'm saying? Uh, telling their wives, you must submit to me while the man is not being obedient to Christ, is not submitting to Christ, is not uh, loving and leading as Christ loves and leads the church. But the principle here is this. This is the principle. Paul is saying that order exists and that it is vastly important. He's saying this. This is our principle. That everyone is under authority. Now we can only imagine how devastating it would be if any one of these three relationships mentioned in chapter or verse 3 did not submit to the authority. All right, so think of it. Christ, Garden of Gethsemane. Why did Christ go to the cross? I just had a conversation with one of our interns about this. Why did Christ go to the cross? Primarily because he loved you? Well, that was a huge part of it. But what was his motivation in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And what led him, what led him onto the cross? What, what caused him to get up and walk to his death? Nevertheless, let your will be done. What if Christ did not submit to the Father? Disaster. We would, we would have been hopeless. Now, we've already seen in certain situations what happens when humanity does not submit to Christ or in particular, what happens when men or husbands do not submit to Christ? It's disastrous. They leave. They leave behind wives, children. They leave communities. They, 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 they don't take up their responsibility. They don't love. They don't lead when they don't submit to Christ. We've seen that. Now we can, we can then understand that if wives don't submit to their husbands in some way, 
there would also be disaster. So the principle here is that everyone is under authority and that order exists and that it is vastly important. Now, before we go on, let me, let me define what we mean by head. Let me define what we mean by submit. Head, gentlemen, does not mean dictator. All right? Head means servant leader. We see this in Ephesians 5. As Christ is the head of the church. How did Christ love the church? Guys, he laid down his life for her. He gave himself to her. He, uh, he gave up his rights so that she might be made beautiful. So head here is a position of authority, yes, but it's the kind of authority that leads the wife into a loving and beautiful relationship with Jesus and with himself. It's a kind of headship that says, I will take responsibility when things go bad. Men, we have to stop shifting the blame. That is not your job to shift the blame when things get messy. Head means you take responsibility and you step up. Now what does submit mean? It doesn't mean doing dishes and, uh, and, and making meals. Submit means to give yourself willingly and lovingly to your husband to help him become the protector, provider, leader, and lover that he is called to be. Meaning, in order for him to do his job, he needs your help. In order for him to love you and provide and protect and lead in the way that he is called to, he needs your help. And so, wives then are called to submit to their husbands. Now, this, we know that this is a principle and not a, um, uh, what's my other word? Symbol. We know that this is a principle because Paul roots it in creation. Look at verse 8. He roots it there in the order of creation itself. Meaning, God created Adam... And then, and told Adam, work, work the field, work, work the garden. And then God said, wait a second, something is not good, all right? Uh, at that point, God did what? He created Eve. He created for Adam a helper. So Eve was created and given this role in the cosmos as helper. Now, does helper then mean inferior? Not at all. Helper is actually a word used for God himself throughout the Psalms in the way that he helps humanity. So helper is a phenomenal title that is given to Eve. So Eve then is given to Adam to be his helper. Now, if this states anything about inferiority, it probably states something about the inferiority of man, that we need a helper. It's not woman that needs a helper. Man needs a helper. God saw man by himself, not woman, man by himself, and he said, something is not good. He's going to kill himself. <laughs> so he gave him a helper. Now, this can help us understand verse uh, 7, I believe it is. Verse 7, where it says that, uh, th- that, that woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? 
Well, another way to say that would be this. I'm going to personalize it. My wife is the glory of my life. We just sang this song, uh, a song to God saying, your glory is beautiful, right? And so we are all as a humanity singing together, your glory, O Lord, is beautiful. And Christ is the glory of humanity and Christ is the glory of of men as well, sort of simultaneously. But also there is this additional level of glory in which men say, your glory is beautiful. My wife is the glory of my wife. I have not been given to my wife as a gift. And she knows that she's been given to me as a gift. And so I treat her not as dirt or as property or in any demeaning or inferior. I treat her as a beautiful, glorious, wonderful gift that has been given to me. And guys, the women that are given to our church are the glory of our church, in a sense. God is the glory above the women. Do you see how this is breaking down here? Do you see what Paul is saying? Now, so that's head, submit, he roots it now in creation, so we know that it is indeed uh, uh, God's principle for humanity. So it's a principle, it's a never-changing, life-giving, joy-inducing truth of God, which means that everyone is under authority, and in particular, this relationship of love and authority is seen and evident between men and women in the church. So what about these head coverings? How do they fall into this? Paul is saying here, as he's talking about head coverings, building on this principle, Paul is saying three things that we can directly apply to our church today and throughout all of history. The first thing he's saying is this. This relationship of love and authority, of submission to loving authority, is or should be evident in the church. So this isn't something that just happens at home, but there should be uh, this love and authority dynamic evident in the way that the church gathers as well. So look at verse uh, verse 4. He says, Every man who prays, prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. In, in pagan uh, temples, the men would take their togo and they would pile it up on their head. And so here is probably, it's possible that uh, he's referring to, uh, to the idolatry Um, There's also some other possibilities that we'll get into. Verse 5, he says, But every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So this is, uh, uh, let's just state here, women should pray and prophesy in in the church, according to Paul, um, in the public gatherings. We're going to talk about women being silent later. You see how we're getting into the good stuff, the easy stuff? I mean, we're just going to breeze through this. Um, but, but Paul clearly says that women should be praying in the life, the public life of the church. However, when they do so, they should have their head covered. What does he mean by that? Uh, why, why should women wear head coverings? Why should women not cover or cut their hair? In first century Greek society, or, and, and before that, women wore head coverings as a sign of being married. So a wife would wear a head covering. Now, Greek culture was crazy, all right? Everybody just keep that in mind. The Corinthians are living in a crazy, corrupt, evil, wicked culture. So, wearing head covering, sign of being married, guess what? Their husbands treat them like property, 
treat them like dirt. They're going around having sex with other people. They're going down to the temple with a thousand temple prostitutes. They're doing whatever they want to do. They're taking on other mistresses. There was now a movement in early Greek culture in which the woman said, I'm taking this thing off. What does that mean? Meaning, I am no longer respecting this person. I'm no longer putting myself under this person's authority because he's wicked and he's corrupt. And the woman would say, then I am going to be as reckless and as sexually provocative as they are. And so women then were taking up, it was this movement called the New Roman Woman in history. It was this movement in which women were saying, we too can have multiple partners. We too can be sexually all over the place. We, don't, we too can treat our husbands like dirt because that's how they treat us. And so now here, it's possible, we don't know this, but it's possible that as the church was gathering in Corinth, some of the Christians were following this new fashion trend. And the women were coming, not wearing head coverings. What does this now say to those who are in attendance? You see where Paul's going here. So Paul is essentially saying this. He's saying, wives, I do not permit you to put on display the fact that you're an adulteress. I do not permit you to look like you're an adulteress. I do not permit you to publicly disrespect your husband or to, to, to show that you are, uh, uh, you are not under your husband's authority. I do not permit you to make others believe that your husband is this sinful, wicked uh, person that should not be respected. You see where he's going here. So what's clear is that as, as, as there are, uh, are people who come to these gatherings, Paul wants them to communicate this order of love and authority that God designed. Look at verse 10. He says, this is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now, I don't think any verse gets questioned more than that one. What does he mean by that? Is this just like a nice way to really get you to wear the head coverings? Like we're passing out doilies on the way out. Everybody grab one. Why? Because of the angels. Go clean your room. Why? Because of the angels. Okay, I'm cleaning. What does he mean by that? Well, there's two possible uh, understandings. One is he literally means angelic beings. So these are the beings that were there with God in creation. They saw God's order. They saw God's design for man and woman. And now here in the church, that order is being corrupted and usurped. Um, and, and the angels are being offended. <laughs> this is not what God designed for humanity. That's one possible. Paul talks elsewhere about this cosmic dimension of angels watching what we do and being encouraged. Another possibility is, is this. Angelos simply means messenger in the Greek. And so Roman soldiers were called angelos. And so they're it's possible that there were Roman soldiers maybe dispatched once a month to check in on and see what's happening to make sure that there's nothing subversive happening. And Paul is saying, as these outsiders come in, we want to put on display God's design. Either way, Paul's goal here, what we see, the big point is that the church should clearly show this love and authority relationship between men and women, husbands and wives. Imagine you visited a church where the wives could not stand their husbands. Uh, 
one wife blurts out, I will submit to him uh, when he's respectable. And he, his face turns red, buries it in his hands. Uh, another husband pinches his wife when the pastor says, wives, submit, listen up. There's clearly no love. There's an abandonment of authority. Uh, single women come to the church dressed like they're going to a nightclub looking to pick up guys, and clearly the single guys love it. For them, they sit back during communion. It's just like a fashion show. I mean, imagine you went to this church. What would this say about the glory of God? In some way, this is, this is actually really hard to understand and how, uh, hard to apply it. But in some way, we know that, that morality and that love and that authority between the sexes and between husbands and wives is in some way to show and to evidence and to be a manifestation of Jesus so that when people come, they easily see it. So verse 5, when a woman prays or prophesies, she ought to have her head covered, he says. Now we know that culture despises authority. We know that culture does not pair love and authority, but the church says that authority is not bad, and it's actually good, and that love and authority are indeed two sides of the same coin. So, how can we possibly even begin to apply this? It is hard to make some correlations here, all right? I don't think just handing out doilies is going to be the best answer. I don't think that communicates what Paul intended it to communicate to the outside world. But we might ask ourselves some questions and begin to apply it in certain ways. First, what are ways that we would reflect submission to authority in our culture? That's a good question to ask. What are some culturally appropriate ways that we show that love and authority are indeed good and together? Uh, Secondly, wives, um, are you regularly complaining about your husbands in public, in public gatherings, in small groups? regularly disrespecting your husbands? Or are you saying that my husband is is a sinner saved by grace in need of a whole lot of sanctification? Amen? Uh, But he's, he's growing in Jesus, and he's growing to love and to lead me as Jesus loves and leads the church. Husbands, are you demanding submission out of your wife when you don't even uh, uh, at all submit to Christ? Are you like Christ, laying down your, wi- your life for your wife and for your church, and is that evident when we gather? Think about how we relate to one another, single, married. Are these things evident? Single people, single men. Um, do you see the, the ladies uh, as, as sisters? Uh, Do you protect them as sisters in Christ, or do you take advantage of them? I mean, we could go on with various questions to begin to try to understand how we can then make these roles in this authority and love relationship evident in the life of the local church. Another way to apply this is morality. How might we demonstrate that we are not an adulteress? or an adulterer? Do you try to make yourself sexually appealing to your spouse only? 
and no one else. For those of you who are single, do you try to make yourself appealing through being adorned with purity? You know what godly guys want? Not guys, let's add the adjective. Godly guys want girls that are adorned with purity. All right, so the first point here is that submission to loving authority should be evident in the life of the local church. All right, second point is this, the second thing he's saying. This is to be seen through men and women being men and women. Let me show you what I mean by that. There's some interesting verses here. Look at verse 4. He says, every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. What does he mean by that? Verse 7, look, look there. For a man ought not to cover his head. Look at verse 14. This is one of the strangest verses. Does not nature itself teach you that a man wears long hair and it's a disgrace or shame for him? When we read this in our elders meeting, I glanced at Brian Sessions after that verse was read. It's a shame. What does this mean? Well, what he's, what he's saying is, is, is this. Um, let's, let's look at this symbol. Remember, this is a symbol, not a principle. All right? Uh, legalists would apply that as a principle. And they would say it's a shame for men to have long hair or whatever. This is a symbol. All right? Looking at the symbol in the Greek context, there's a Greek author that refers to a boy with long hair and he calls the boy as having girlish locks. And then he says that it confuses his sex. Meaning, in the Greek culture, uh, there, to, for, for the boy or the man to have long hair would have actually confused his, his gender. Uh, he would have been seen as feminine. And so Paul is saying then this is shameful for him. Now, in the same way, our symbol today, our symbols are different. Um, but if, it, men, if we required you to wear a dress to church, you, there might be a sense of shame attached to that as you show up wearing a dress. Meaning, we, we have symbols ourselves that identifies men and that identify women. And Paul is saying this, men should be masculine and women should be feminine. Now, Why? Is this like some kind of like 1950s, uh, what's his name, the, the cowboy guy, um, John Wayne. This is like John Wayne masculinity. Paul's just like about macho men and lifting weights and girls kind of being pretty and whatever. Like what, what, what is he getting at? It's not John Wayne at all, all right? I'm just going to answer that question for you. John Wayne came about 1950 years later roughly speaking. What he's doing here is this. He is, he is referring to something much more core than just simple masculinity. This is our third point, all right? This is our third point. Uh, and, and actually, before I give you the third point, Genesis 1.27, can anybody quote it? For God made man in his image, next words, male and female, he created them. See, this isn't John Wayne sort of masculinity. This is saying something more to the core, to the heart of who God is. God created humanity in His image, both male and female. 
So what he's saying is, is that when we are men and when you are women, when there is male and there is female, what we are seeing is the image of God. This means that as men are created in the image of God, women are equally so created in the image of God. The move today to make boys more like girls or to tell women that in order for you to have identity and purpose, you must be masculine is destructive. It actually is idolatry. It flies into the face of God and His creation. What Paul wants, it's nothing about what we talk about with cultural whatever, with men. Paul says, I want the image of God to be embraced in the life of the local church. All right, so now this brings us to our third point, and that is this. This is not about legalistic standards. This is not about cultural symbols. They change. This is about the heart of the gospel. This is about holding up the gospel of Jesus Christ. The relationship between men and women points us to, and it gets right at the heart of the gospel. Now look closely back at verse 3. He says in verse 3, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. According to our statement of basic belief for our church, it says this, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal in being, co-eternal in nature, co-equal in power and glory and having the same attributes and perfections, yet Christ willingly submitted Himself to the Father. Absolute equality. Co-equal. When we talk about, ladies, when we talk about submitting to your husband, we're not talking about less than equal. No, we're actually lifting us up as equals more so than the egalitarian does. Because the egalitarian tells you that you must fit into his role in order to have purpose. No, we embrace the image of God. And Christ willingly and lovingly submitted to the Father as an equal. So in the church... Men are called to stand up and take some responsibility. And ladies, when you call that out in us, you are a reflection of God. There's a story of, uh, in a third world country, a church was started by women. They were first generation converts. None of the men were Christians. And these women, they, they embraced the gospel, repented, and they believed the gospel, and they started a church together. Their husbands, as they shared their faith and as they lived their lives in, in purity, their husbands became Christians. You know what they did? They looked at their husbands, and they said, now you step up and lead us. You see, when a wife 
And when women call out the men to step up and to take their role that God has given them, you are reflecting the image of God. These women are saying, lead us so that you might reflect the image of God so that we might have our opportunity to reflect the image and the character of Jesus Christ. Men, Christ is your authority. Meaning, while He's uniquely your model, you will answer directly to Him not just for yourself, but for how you loved and protected your wife, how you protected other females around you, sisters, friends. Christ is uniquely your model. You might not be a Christian, and this is what you need to know about this model of Christ. The Father set His affections upon you decided to adopt you as His child and sent His Son into this world. The Son willingly submitted to the direction of the Father and came into this world to give His life for you. To give His all for you. And you can't know what it means to lead and to love unless you know what it means that Jesus gave everything for you. That Jesus laid down His life for you. Took sin, your sin, on Himself. Paid the penalty for your sin. Died. Rose from the dead. And all who trust in Him, if you trust in Him today, you are freed from the penalty of sin. You have the hope of resurrection and the hope of being freed from all sin in the next life. When you know that, you begin to get a glimpse now into what Paul means here as you lead, and as you love. When we talk about male and female, we are talking about the image of God. When we talk about love and authority, we're talking about the image of God. When we talk about service, laying down your wife, or your... <laughs> Excuse me, laying down your life for your wife. We're talking about Christ. And when we're talking about submission, we're talking about Christ. And may we as a church boldly display the image of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is given to us and preserved for us. While some of these things are difficult, they are countercultural, we are going to trust that you are good and that all of your truth is good. And God, for those who have experienced the goodness of, of, of living in these relationships of love and authority, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And may we reflect your image to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.